It was a fun Sunday morning several years ago. We woke up our kids early, uh, and we said to our two boys, who at that point were third and fifth grade, we said, we want you to open up a Christmas present early. And you would have thought that Jesus had just showed up. They would have been like, they're like, what? What's wrong with you guys? Nothing. We just want you to open up a Christmas present early. Okay. We got down. They opened up this little package. They were on the floor. They opened up. Laura and I had created this little puzzle with, with words that you had to put together. Any of the messed up coloring was my part. They could totally tell which letters I colored. And they put it together. And at first they see all the letters like, oh, great schoolwork. No, just put the puzzle together. So they put the puzzle together and it said, Chicago Bears. And I was going to take them to a Chicago Bears game, their first ever. And there was screaming and yelling and jumping around. We almost broke a coffee table by the big fifth grader. So excited. They're like, we're not even going to church. What's wrong with you guys? And so Lauren and Ruthie went to church and I'd taken the day off, not, not telling them, and we drove to Chicago and walked into that stadium to see the Bears lose another game. <laughs> yeah, it's far for the course. That's okay, because here's what I remember. Here's what I remember. We walked in that stadium and you walk through that little, you know, kind of walk around, find your spot. We were way up near the top and we walked in through that little tunnel to you kind of go out to that kind of overview where you just see this entire stadium. And I'll never forget, these little third and fifth grade boys walked up and they're and just, they just like, they gasped. Like, <gasps> and they just see this crowd filling in this massive stadium and there were the players on the field, they were warming up and they just like took it in. And me, this dad, having been to my first game when I was a fifth grader, just kind of watched these two little boys taking it all in. And I said, all right, you know, give him 30 seconds. Hey, let's go. We got to go find our seat. And then my fifth grader goes, can we just have one more minute just looking at it? All right. Just, just, just look a little bit more. It's a fond memory with me with my two boys in that first Chicago Bears game. And I want to tell you, it is nothing in comparison to what Janine just read for us right now. Like, it feels pretty impressive to be in a stadium of, I don't know, what is it? 60, 70,000 people all rooting for one arguably particular team, heralding them, calling them out, wanting them to be conquerors. It is a whole nother when you look at Revelation 5. If you have your notes still with you or your Bible, look with me at Revelation 5. And, and, and bear with it. Get past some of the language of scrolls and elders and, and, and seals. I mean, just get through that for a second. And just picture this, the world is in total, total chaos. It's, it's, it's ravaged by war and famine and brokenness and sin. And it feels like there's nothing that overcome it. And then in verse 5, one of the elders said to John, weep no more. Behold, that's Bible talk. For, listen, pay attention, take heed. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. It's using all this Old Testament illusion. That's a good way to understand Revelation is all the loose, loose ends, all the threads running through Scripture. By the time they get to the end of the story, they just perfectly form together in this harmonious portrait of domination and glory. 
And the elder says, he has conquered, the lion. He can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between, verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, get this, a lamb. Again, you don't think, you don't think like this, you, you picture like this conquering monster, like release the kraken, right? Now that's the kind of monster you expect. You get a lamb? What? That's the victorious one is a lamb? And, and look at how he's described standing as though it had been slain. Like, it, we look for power in the things of this world. God's early people did that, right? They wanted Saul because he was like 6'4 or something. Like, that's a king, right? He's got to look like the Assyrian kings and Babylonian kings. They got to be good warriors, right? Remember King David, like the wimpy little brother? God looks at the heart. God shows the foolishness of this world with the weak things. It's a lamb, like John the Baptist saw. Behold the lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. Verse seven, and he went, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, some stuff happens, right? The living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They knew who he was. In verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And man, don't miss this verse. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. That could even be just translated as a people for God, like a particular people. From every tribe and language and people and nation. We just blow right past that because we are so used to thinking of our own selves based upon our individual nation or our individual subculture, that is so beautiful. That God ransomed a people from every tribe. Doesn't even start with big nation. The first word he uses is tribe. As if God doesn't need to start with the big powerhouses who come to the big summits. He's gonna start with some little tribe, maybe one that didn't even have a Bible in their own language. And even in people groups like that, through, through, through sacrificing missionaries who present the gospel of them, God is redeeming those people. And he's gathering them here in this eternal, international, eschatological church from every tribe and language and people and nation, people who came from countries with big, big militaries and huge economies, and people who came from nothing, people with every shade of skin you can imagine, some of the rich kings and queens, royalty and peasants who never owned a thing in their life. And look at verse 10, and you, this lamb, the lion lamb, have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Notice that, that language of kingdom. Like what's their nationality now? What nation do they claim on this day? Well, actually we're American kingdomers or we're English king. No, 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 you are now citizens of the eternal kingdom. You're your other nationality, your citizenship, that fades. You turn in those passports. A kingdom and priests, notice that, ministering servants to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, and it's so many, it makes Chicago Bear Stadium, even packed full, looks pretty wimpy numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying 
with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And, and don't miss this one, especially kids, listen to this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, even dogs, cats, on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, even Nemo, and all of that is in them. And, and we laugh at that, but what is that trying to say? There isn't one creature that wasn't designed to worship the creator. So you can, we can laugh, and, and it's true. I mean, I mentioned Nemo, and I'm trying to make that. But think about that. Literally, everything was made to do what? Give glory to God. And by the end of time, as Greg just said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and every creature in the sea, even, will know full well who is God and who is king. And what are they saying? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now you, you need to understand, when we gather as a church, it is like a dress rehearsal. It is. One of the, one of the best parts of officiating at weddings is doing the rehearsal the night before because there's this excitement. The bride and groom are just looking at each other with their googly eyes. The bridesmaids and the groomsmen are joking around and they're having fun, but we're all making sure we know where we stand so when we do the ceremony the next day, we can focus on the main thing. Because the main thing is not the rehearsal. The main thing is the wedding. The church is like a rehearsal for this day. So we better practice what we're going to say. So if you have your notes still there or your Bible, I'll be the narrator and you be the voices who speak the words of praise, you have to represent the voice of myriads of myriads, so you better speak loudly. I'll start with the narration in 12, and then you say, beginning with worthy, all of these angels sang with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I think of the reality that you will one day say those words. But you will say them not just in a local church gathering in northern Illinois. And it will be Christians gathered from all over the world. And it won't even just be Christians who are right now living in this present day. It will be Christians from all the ages. Lord willing, your great-great-grandparents. And Lord willing, if the Lord hasn't returned, your great-great-grandchildren. And it will be people of every shade of color, from powerful nations to the smallest little tribe, gathering around this throne, saying those words. So kind of like my fifth grade son from a few years ago, you kind of got to stop when you see that impressive image of a stadium of worshipers in Revelation 5 and say, can we just take another minute to take this in? We talked about last week what the church is not. We need to talk about today what the church is. We're doing this series because... It just feels like in light of all the chaos we've had, the, the division, the strife in our country, and even in churches, that we might need to make sure we know what the main thing is. 
And church is one of those main things. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give you, I'm going to give you seven attributes. I like alliteration, pardon the P's. Seven attributes that the Bible provides that answer the question, what is the church? And I want to tell you, it's, it's driven by this beautiful, eternal perspective that we get here in Revelation 5. But pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, this image that you give us, this promise that you declare. Thank you that all the chaos we see, all the strife in our world, that there is only one who is worthy. And he is the one who looks like a slain lamb, but is actually a lion. He is the one who has conquered. Help us to live that way, to see that. And help us even now, young and old alike, new believer to veteran saint, be taught or reminded about what the church is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seven attributes. The first is this. The church is the pleasure of God. Now, you might not have thought that. You might have thought, hey, you're going to find the church where it's got building, air conditioners, and heaters, or it's people with chairs, and you got some music you're singing. And No, no, listen. The first thing you need to know about the church is it literally flows out of God's pleasure. Out of his love, not need. He didn't need us. Out of his love, God created a people to give a share of his life. Everything about the church that way? You just think about buildings and budgets. You think about it this way. Literally, God created the church to be a people he could share his goodness and glory and love with. Listen to the language that God uses to speak of his people way back in during the old covenant, Isaiah 43. Listen, listen to God talk about his people. This is the first seven verses I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out from the beginning of Isaiah 43. God says, you are precious in my eyes. You are honored in my view. I love you. I created you for my glory. The church is the pleasure of God. And if you and I love to give good gifts to our children, how much more? Does God love to give good gifts to us? That he forms us and creates us to be a unique people for him. That he gives a share in his life and identity. You got to start with that. You got to start with those big pictures. Out of love, God created a people to give a share of his life. Here's the second. The church is the people of God. That's exactly what you actually see Revelation 5 talking about. Look at verse 9. By your blood, referring to the slain lamb, to Jesus, by your blood, you ransomed a people for God. For God. They're the people of God. God establishes a family to love and to serve in his creation. J.I. Packer says probably the best word, if you're going to use to summarize the message of the Bible that incorporates the gospel and the truth, is the word adoption. Like we were literally orphans, strangers, aliens, outsiders, cursed. And God adopted us, not just to let us live on his property or serve in his home, but to be his children. What kind of a God is that? The whole Bible 
And the whole story of Scripture explains how God calls out a people. That's what the word church means, a people called out. Or just more rigidly, church means the gathering, like a family meal, like a reunion of the saints, which is really what you could say Revelation 5 is. The church is the people of God, his own children. And, and you can feel what that means then for us in the church. That means if we have the same father through the blood of Christ, then we're one another's brothers and sisters. That should radically change how we view one another, how we speak about one another, how we serve and care for one another. Because we're God's people. We're his family. Pleasure of God, people of God. Third, the church is the presence of God. There's this unique description in the New Testament about how Jesus Christ incarnate, God incarnate, literally ascends to the Father, then fills us with his spirit so that we can be what Paul says like a hundred times, the body of Christ. Now he's not saying that we replace the incarnate Jesus. He's simply saying that we manifest the presence of Jesus. You can imagine the disciples were a little confused when Jesus is saying to them, when they're in these three-year little out in the woods, campfire songs, getting to eat with Jesus every day, which would be pretty cool. And he says, oh, by the way, it's good for me to go. And they're like, we're all going to be apostles too. We'd like to politely disagree with you. We think it's much better when you're physically around. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. You're not just going to have me on the outside. You're going to have me by the presence of the Spirit on the inside, directing, loving, guiding, ministering, convicting. And then you will become the manifestation of the body of Christ in the world who display his power and reflect his presence. That's beautiful to think about. It is pretty hard to imagine doing church this way if it's through an app or a screen. I can't imagine an iCampus manifesting very well the body of Christ. He didn't say the Zoom meeting of Christ. He didn't say the iCampus of Christ. He said the body of Christ. And we become this unique people group, like Revelation 5 depicts, we become a countercultural. We become a ministry agency and an embassy of God's kingdom that reflects who we truly are as Revelation 5 depicts it. All, all these other associations and allegiances kind of fade or take second place in light of this universal identity as the people of God, as Revelation 5 reveals. And we physically then begin to live out the kind of ministry presence that Christ had. And you, you see the Gospels, you got half the New Testament, 47% of the New Testament is just the Gospels. You see over and over, what did Jesus do? Touch on the shoulder. I can imagine a million little embraces and hugs, meals and fellowship, caring for the sick, speaking to the poor, rebuking those who have made their own kind of theology or politics something of the most significance. You saw a lived out Christianity in word and deed that the church is supposed to emulate in the way it exists because we are the body of Christ, ministering presence of him 
in the world, guided and led by the Spirit of God that he has given to us. Pleasure, people, presence, the fourth attribute of the church is power. The church is the power of God. Now that might sound kind of strange because you see level of weakness. Jesus may be the lion of Judah, but he came as a lamb. But not power as in a political power of this world. It's a spiritual power. It's a kingdom power. God's people have a unique authority, derived, of course, in their kingdom work. And the power of Christ is extended through the church. This is where you see uh, the kind of images the New Testament gives regarding literally that we will judge not only the world, but even angels. Apostle Paul teaches us that. And I don't want to go down that trail too long. And that's an interesting kind of statement Paul made. What he's trying to say is the church literally has a spiritual authority that will be executed in the world. Proof of that is what we just read in Revelation 5. Look at verse 10. Made them, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And what else? End of verse 10. And they shall reign on the earth. See how we blow right past that and miss these core tenets of the nature of what it means to be the church? That's why Paul can say, well, you guys will be judging the rest of creation and including a derived authority that judges angels. Or how about this? How about the Great Commission? I think we hear the Great Commission as just kind of a, maybe a low-level discipleship program, right? That Jesus Christ assigned us to be disciple makers. And there's truth in that. But don't miss the context. Jesus begins the Great Commission with all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. Like why throw in the authority part at all? If that isn't because it is a spiritual work that all of the demonic forces, all of a secular evil world, all human flesh, our own flesh, And the devil himself will do everything they can to stop God from breaking the chains of sin and death in someone's life and leading them toward Christ. And in the midst of all that God and his spirit are doing, he's assigned the church to be given an authority, declare the gospel in word and deed, and he blesses us with allowing us to see that spiritual work happen in another person's life. That maybe you've, maybe you've been able to be with somebody who comes to faith in Christ and you get to see literally God's spirit working in them and God, even if in a small partial way, used you too for his purposes. That's miraculous. If we're being honest, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ are the very recipients of that miracle. Everything was against it. The world, Satan, demonic forces, our own sinful flesh, and yet somehow by the grace of God, boom, it's, our eyes are opened, our calloused heart is softened, and we confess Christ and him crucified. That's power. Fifth, the church, here's this big word, kids, that, that, that Vera mentioned to you. I didn't even think about that, my bad. The church is the proclamation of God. It's what we say, kids. If I were going to summarize, I'd say it's what we say with our mouths. God's people are ministers in words. They declare what is 
unique through Jesus Christ and the work of the gospel. They serve as ambassadors of Christ. They represent him. They're they're kingdom representatives wherever they go. Their church is an embassy, and then they leave the embassy and go into their places of business and their schools and their home groups and all the little connections, neighborhoods, soccer teams, football teams, whatever it is, swim clubs. They're going to all these little places as ambassadors of the kingdom with a message that Jesus is true. It's a special grace ministry. And I, I, I've used this category before, and I'll, I'll, I'll define it again because I think the categories of special grace and common grace are really helpful. And the, the, the first letter of special Special and common, S and C can really define it for you. Special grace is anything that uniquely requires the work of the Savior. And common grace is common because it's connected to the gifts and giving of the Creator. So the church has a ministry of proclamation, is a, a, the proclamation of God that they have a special grace assignment to declare the truth about the gospel. But sixth, the church is also the provision of God. If God's people are ministers in words, they're also ministers in works. Here's where it's a common grace task. That they help those who are broken. They visit those who are lonely. They fix sinks that are leaking. They help carry couches and move furniture. They walk someone to a car when it's slippery. They feed somebody when they're hungry. They give hugs when they're sad. They Send, provide meals when they're sick. They give words of encouragement because they are what Jesus would be, hugging, serving, helping, visiting, caring, loving. It's the gospel in works, just as there's a gospel with words. The church serves as children of the new creation. Beautiful example I can think of Recently, I visited some of uh, some sweet sisters in Christ, shut-ins in various places, whether it's at Fairhaven or other facilities in which they live, some of whom have no access to get out. If they come to church, it's because somebody literally has to drive them. They can't get their own groceries. They get kind of lonely. And I'm talking to one sister, and almost without even looking, she like reaches over and grabs this card that another sister in Christ had given to her. And she gets kind of emotional because she says, every single month I get this card from this sister, and she writes the most encouraging things. And she was even talking about how beautiful the card looked. Like somebody in this church created a card for this sister and writes her every month and gets Get this. She's actually never met her physically. Like, it's not like they've been old friends, so it's merely a friend connection. It's not. It's a sister in Christ who says, I'm going to make sure that if there's somebody in our family that doesn't have access to the kind of regular relational time and conversation that we get to have on a weekly basis that somebody's reaching out to her. And she literally had it sitting right next to her. I can only imagine in those moments of loneliness, she can look right over at this little folded card looking at her in the face and be reminded that a sister in this church loves her. Or how about another sister I visited and she was so just moved to tell me about this couple that comes weekly to deliver her groceries because she doesn't have access to the grocery store. She didn't even have a car. And they come and she says, and you know what? They don't even just drop it off. They visit with me every single time they come. In fact, the husband, he won't even let me put the groceries away. Like he's in the kitchen and he's like, no, 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 I got it. And he puts them away in her cupboard for her. And she's like, I just feel so loved. 
That's how the church is the provision of God. God's people are ministers in works, and it's beautiful. But never forget even what we ultimately said at the very beginning, that all of this is because God created a people to manifest his love and affection in all that they do. It completely fits the pleasure of God. I, it was so fun to see those two little boys of mine when they were in elementary school, jumping around the room and they found out they're going to a Bears game and damaging our coffee table. I mean, just the, just the jumping and the yelling and the noise, crying little sister in the background. As a dad, it was a joy. Laura and I had a blast putting this silly little puzzle together the night before and wrapping it. We, I couldn't wait for the alarm to go off to wake up the kids. How much does God the Father love to give? To see that a sister gets a card from another sister. To see that making sure they don't just drop the bag off on the table. They're going to make sure every item is totally in the fridge or the cupboard because they love this sister to whom there's no relation. And even until about a year ago, they didn't even know each other's names. Like, what is that? It's not a what. It's a who. It's Jesus. It's the church of Christ. It's beautiful. Last thing, and it's fitting that the first and the last are these big picture ones because people, presence, power, proclamation, and provisions, two through six, they kind of, you can kind of put a finger on those. The number one, pleasure, that's maybe newer, but how about this purpose? Number seven, the church is the purpose of God. That God, from the beginning, it wasn't a plan B, well, I guess you guys are lonely, I'll about to give you a few friends. That wasn't it. God had always intended to gather a people to himself to display his love and his glory. And if you want to see where it ultimately goes, Revelation 5. And it's beautiful. And like that fifth grade boy of mine a few years ago, you just kind of want to look at it. You just want to say, look at all the people. Look at all the nations, tribes. Look at all the skin colors and imagine all the different experiences and language and food groups and all those things that might be represented. Experiences, kings, wealthy, taking off their shiny gold and putting on robes of righteousness. Paupers in clothes that would be just gross and smelling, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Gathered. And as much as there's probably some friends and family they would love to greet, following the lead of the rest of creation, they kneel before a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And it's hard. Listen, it is hard because we are meaning-making machines. We were made to worship. And you're going to watch, right? You're going to go home and see the bears arguably lose again. And you're going to see a stadium full of people. And here's what you're going to see. They're going to be praising one who they will claim as a conqueror. And stadiums will be full of people all across this country as they are all across the world and other things. Whether it's for politicians or for football or soccer teams or whatever it is. They love to gather and they love to worship. And you need to know the worship you just did was a dress rehearsal for the ultimate worship of God. That all creation literally was designed 
to gather in something like a stadium with thousands of thousands worshiping a conqueror who looks like a slain lamb. The church is not a means to an end, brothers and sisters. It's not just an add-on to your spiritual life. It's what God had purposed from the beginning. It is the end. It's an essential aspect of the end itself. The church is eschatology in that sense. So my son last week, the one that used to be a third grader, for that Bears game, said, hey, Dad, I listen. You know, we're watching football and we're talking. I listened and I, I, get, I get what the church is not. It's not a coffee with friends. It's not a human project, et cetera, et cetera. But I still don't understand what the church is. I said, well, come back next week. We'll, we'll get there. But I thought to myself about that fair question and I said, well, here's what I would say in summary because I gave all these seven. But here's what I would say if I were to abbreviate it as we close. The church is how God ministers to his people and the world. There it is. There's a lot of other things that God may use and do, but it is the church that God uses to minister to his people and to the world. And it's part of God's, not just his purpose, but also his pleasure. So what is the church? What does Revelation 5 teach us? And how do we respond to that? We're going to end singing the worth of Christ in song. And again, I, we, we say this regularly, but I say it again. I hope after Revelation 5 that you're able to sing these song, the words of these songs and let them be a reflection of your heart. Like let it be part of your worship to a God who is worthy of all of those things. And I pray as we continue in this series on the church that we grow in our understanding of the sacred importance of what it means that we even right now sit and gather here this morning. So I'm going to pray. Pray with me as we close time in God's Word together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the gospel. Father, we're blown away that you would literally create a people for yourself out of your good pleasure that the church is not just mere one human institution like nations and cities and governments but that this eternal identity of the church is rooted in your purposes for the whole world that we can be ambassadors that declare your special grace and proficient ministers of common grace a people, a family. Father, help us to see that. Help us to feel that even as we work through this series. Father, we ask that this closing song, this response to your word, this declaration to you is our own kind of proclamation that you are worthy. O slain lamb on the throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.